Hi, this is Mike Dream, Station Manager for 810KLVZ. I met author, speaker, and discipleship trainer Mike Wolf a few months back through a men's group that we both attend. After listening to what he had to say in the group, I began reading his blogs, and his heart for men and challenging message for the church led me to ask him in for some interviews. Shortly after that, we began discussing a weekly spot so he could bring this entire message forward to our listening audience. I'm now proud to announce his new show, Voice in the Wilderness, beginning right now. Hi, this is Mike Wolf on Voice in the Wilderness, proclaiming to my brothers everywhere Paul's words to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Today I have one last teaching on the cross, and then we move on in rebuilding our perception of Jesus Christ as the most interesting man who ever lived. Not the one being marketed by organized religion today that has you asleep in the pews and trying to find your excitement in whatever the world can serve up. Once you catch a vision for the real Jesus, you will never go back to the God of Sunday morning American church. The past two weeks, we've focused on rebuilding a new and fresh perception of Jesus because it is our perceptions of him that hold us back. We must go back to the point of beginning to begin any rebuilding process, and the cross is that point. So to finish up on that discussion, the last point I wanted to bring up is found in Mark 8.34 where Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Why must we take the cross up daily? Why? Because the enemy attacks daily. He attacks our flesh, trying to get us to go back to loving the world, loving money, loving comfort, and loving our former man. The idol of grace, God of Laodicea, is satisfied with us making a brief stop at the cross to thank Jesus for going there for us when Jesus wants him not only to join him there but he wants us to join him there daily and let's look at the very next two verses verses 35 and 36 for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake he is the one who will save it for what man what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. The cross, as I have said over and over again over these last two weeks, is where we must daily forfeit the whole world to gain what's important, the kingdom of heaven on earth and our eternal life. And not only that, but it's the starting point, it's the building block, it's the foundation of everything we're going to build from now on. Because as we discussed before also, anything we, we allow to remain undead through our cross experience is going to plague us for the rest of our Christian lives. So brothers, the first stop along the way to discovering the true Jesus is to join him daily at his cross to shed the delicacies and temptations of this kingdom that will grow up and choke your seed with the cares of this world. He wants you to make the cross part of your daily reflections so you can fully partake of everything he has for you in his kingdom. Whenever you leave undead at the cross, we'll live to be a stumbling block between Jesus and you later on. Come to the cross. Come to die. Come to sacrifice everything to gain more than you could ever hope or imagine. Come to feel the shame he felt 
and the shame you need to experience over your sin so that later on as you grow in him you can come to despise the shame as he did and sit down at the right hand of the Father on high. Jesus said a man cannot serve two masters, for he was always come to love one and to hate the other. Too many of my brothers occupying pews on Saturdays and Sundays now live in a twilight zone torn between Jesus and the world. They are desperately trying to love both masters and it's not working. It's dysfunctional. And I want so badly for their experience of Jesus to work for them. Men, you can fully live for him in this life, but first you must be willing to give up all you are living for now. Go back to the cross, willing to shed whatever it takes and do whatever it takes to get closer to Jesus. Then go back there tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And I promise you, you will. Don't ever stop going back there to shed the barnacles of this life. Satan and his gang are constantly, intrepidly, and with great perseverance trying to attach to the hull of your ship. Begin to form a whole new perspective of Jesus Christ. It starts where everything that matters in the kingdom of heaven on earth starts, at the cross. Now I want to move on to our next uh, topic in rebuilding our perception of Jesus Christ. And that's to ask the question, why did Jesus speak as one in authority? Why did the people think that Jesus spoke with authority? In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, we read, when Jesus had finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What was it that gave Jesus this air of authority? He hadn't revealed himself to be the Messiah, except to but a chosen few. And even after he did, very few believed it. No, there must have been something about Jesus that set him apart from the temple teachers of the day, other than any knowledge of his divinity when these words were recorded. Was it that Jesus just spoke with so much more authority? Did he talk louder or with more eloquence? I don't think so. Wasn't it rather that in comparison with the religious leaders who had largely lost their authority, Jesus seemed so much more authoritative? I believe it's part of both, and I believe it came down to four characteristics he displayed that the religious leaders did not. Many years ago, and, and this was my tipping point, this was my aha moment, when after being a Christian for a number of years, the Holy Spirit just moved in in one blessed moment and transformed my life. And it was when I was up in the mountains of Colorado at a Young Life camp in, uh, at Frontier Ranch in Buena Vista. I had been a Young Life leader for a few years, and um, every year they had a couple of three different camps. Uh, one that I really enjoyed was called their Campaigner Camp. And the Campaigner Camp... The campaigners were the kids we were discipling. The campaigners were the kids who wanted to go the extra mile. The campaigners were the kids who really wanted to be discipled and wanted to get past just the fun and games that, you know, we did on, on uh, Monday nights. And so they had a special camp for those kids where we dug deeper into the word. You know, we had more deep fellowship. It was a, a lot more intensive time than the normal evangelical camps that would comprise the other part of what they did up there. And I remember one night they were going to show a movie in the, uh, in the theater, and it was called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. 
and I had never heard of the movie before, but uh, I heard that it was the, uh, you know, it was the story of St. Francis of Assisi. And I didn't know much about him other than he was a very famous saint in the Catholic faith. Um, and I had nothing better to do. All the activities for the day were done. And this was just one of the things that was there for you to do at night. And so I decided to check this movie out. And the, the movie starts out with the story of how St. Francis of Assisi was touched by God. Um, he came from a very wealthy family, textile family, and he went off to war and he got injured. And when he was laying in bed in a, in a uh, convent, um, the Holy Spirit just invaded his life and totally transformed him. And as the story goes on, um, they start in the beginning showing the, the local Catholic church with all its pomp and circumstance and all the, you know, the priests in their gowns and in their, in, in their um, you know, their fancy hats and with their staffs and all this stuff and all the people, uh, you know, at the, at the Catholic parish there, uh, at the services. And St. Francis just decides that's not really what God's calling him to do. And he goes outside, even, even though he came from a wealthy family, even though he had all the money in the world, if he wanted it, he went outside of the city and was called to minister to the lepers. Now, back then, you did not touch a leper because there was, there was no cure for leprosy. And uh, people were so paranoid about this thing, you know, this leprosy thing, if you were a leper, if you ever walked through town or if you were ever among other people, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, because nobody wanted to be anywhere near you. Because if they contracted the disease, they were going to be cursed and they were going to die from it. There was no hope. And so for a, for a well man, for a whole healthy man, to decide all of a sudden to go and minister to the lepers in the leper colony was just unheard of. And aside from ministering in the leper colony, uh, um, St. Francis felt led to start building a little stone church out in this field well away from town so that he could minister to these lepers. And also because some men had started following him, uh, some disciples had started kind of latching themselves onto him. So in the beginning, we see all the people in the Catholic parish, you know, everybody's there in town and everything's good. And then here's this little guy out here all by himself with maybe one or two other little guys, you know, in bare feet, taking one stone and putting on top of another one, building this little, this little church out in the middle of nowhere. And as the movie progresses more and more and more people start following St. Francis and more and more and more people start leaving the Catholic parish and toward the uh, middle part of the movie, we see the Catholic parish literally empty and all of the, you know, all the, the, the Catholic priests and the leaders sitting in there scratching their heads, wondering what to do and then the, the view switches to St. Francis's little church, which is now built, and there are people standing in it. There's people standing all around it. The entire town has gone out to see him. 
at least according to the to the movie and the things that I've written about St. Francis, he didn't scream at people, he didn't yell at people, he didn't he wasn't eloquent. He just followed God. And he set an example with his life that matched his words, and people flocked to him. And it's the same thing that happened with Jesus. Jesus not only spoke, but lived the gospel before men. They slowly abandoned their temple teachers who taught but failed to model their teachings, and they followed him, just like the people in the movie followed St. Francis. And by the way, that is a movie, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. Um, it, it was a life changer for me, and I'm not going to go into the, the rest of the reasons right now because they're not germane to our discussion. I'll do that in a later uh, broadcast because it will be. But if you've never seen that movie, man, you really need to see it. It's a powerful, powerful movie about what God really is looking for from us and, and a man whose life gets totally captured by the Holy Spirit and what that looks like here on this earth. So anyway... Um, but it's the same thing that I think happened with Jesus and the temple leaders of his day. We see story after story of Jesus preaching to thousands. And we also know that the religious leaders were, were growing more and more jealous of him. Well, why? Well, because he was threatening their lifestyle. The temple was what it was all about with them. That's where they made their money. That's where they had their power. And as Jesus drew people away from the temple to his teaching and to his miracles and to the life that he led before them, the religious, feeler, the religious leaders were feeling it. It was, it was threatening their world, and they became very jealous and very angry, and that's why they were constantly looking for ways to attack him and to undermine his ministry. Now, Matthew 9 speaks of Jesus feeling compassion for his flock, because they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. We, we touched on that in an earlier broadcast. His people were looking for a shepherd, someone to lead them in word and deed, not more disseminators of Bible knowledge like their religious leaders. The first of the four characteristics I want to talk about as to why Jesus spoke as one in authority over those they had listened to previously is defined in who Jesus claimed to be, and in all ways was, the Good Shepherd. Unlike the temple leaders who preached one message but lived another, Jesus' teachings and lifestyle were one and the same. He was the Word made flesh, as John tells us. He was ever the living example of his teachings. He could boldly say, follow me, because there was a person worthy of following as well as a message worthy of hearing that people saw and heard in Jesus Christ. Later on, Paul would likewise boldly proclaim, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. How is it men like this inspire while men like the temple teachers of Jesus' day, along sadly with most of our modern day temple teachers, do not? In John 15, 12 through 13, we read this. This is my commandment. This is Jesus speaking. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Notice Jesus said, he commands them to love one another, how? Just as he loved them. And he explained the way to do that is to lay down our life for others, just as he laid down his. 
See, there's that example, there's the words, and the example working together. Jesus never said, hey, go love them like the Bible commands you to do, but don't watch me. No, he said, I command you to love one another just as I have loved you. And then he said, the way you do this is you lay down your life for others. And I want to talk about that a minute. I do not believe this was some sort of martyr's command. Yes, Jesus laid down his life in death, in martyrdom for us. But if that was the standard, um, if loving people required us to be martyred, to prove that, there would be precious few who would qualify. No, I believe what Jesus was saying was also what he modeled through his whole life. It means laying down your life, all of it, day after day, over the long haul. It means climbing into the gutters of others' lives to lift them up and then staying with them until they are ready to stand on their own two feet and start ministering to others. If you recall the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, and I won't, I won't read it now because it's a long story, it's no coincidence that the ones Jesus compared the man who, <clears throat> who loved his neighbor to um, were a priest and a Levite. In other words, the, the Jesus said the, the Samaritan was the guy who really loved this guy. He, he wasn't a, pre, a priest. He wasn't a Levite. He was just a good man who came along, found this guy bleeding on the roadside, bandages him up, takes him to a, an inn, you know, pays for him and says that there's anything more he needs, I'll pay when I get back. And yet, who were the guys that not only did not touch out him, not only did not minister to him, but actually crossed over to the other side of the road so they didn't have to be near him, so they didn't have to confront him? <laughs> Jesus uses a priest and a Levite, religious leaders. In John 7, 14, 18, 14 through 18, we read, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but, who, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself." Here again, we find the contrast between teachers of knowledge and good shepherds who love. All the temple teachers were interested in was how Jesus had gained such knowledge without having spent the time in the seminaries of their day that they did. But Jesus tied his knowledge to his simple obedience to his father's will, to love his neighbor and to lay down his life, just like he commanded in John 15. And he said anyone being likewise obedient would understand where he got his truths. The reason they didn't understand is because they were all about knowledge. And Jesus was not about knowledge as much as he was about the balance of modeling and speaking knowledge, the model of love and information. Going back to John 15 again, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus speaks of the difference here between what he calls friends and slaves. 
He says, friends understand his words while slaves do not. And what makes us friends is simple obedience to his commands. The good shepherd set an example of living and learning. And only those who want to be his friends are going to do the same thing. It's not enough to just learn. We have to put that into practice through the action of love. In Matthew 21, 23 through 31, Jesus, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, and which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came into the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But then he thought better of it and did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The temple teachers here again were challenging Jesus' authority. In response, he tells them a parable about simple obedience being the key to authority. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, Paul says that if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and we have a gift of prophecy, and we know all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, we are nothing at all. Notice all of these lesser gifts can be accomplished through study and then dissemination of knowledge with our mouths. This is the trap temple teachers both then and now fall into. By the time they have spent so many years having their heads crammed with knowledge in their seminaries, they come to believe disseminating that knowledge into the heads of others is what's important above all else, when nothing could be further from the truth. I want to close with a, a little story um, I personally uh, was a part of years ago. I had a little gal living with us in our basement. We rented it out uh, because we put an ad on the website of a local seminary. And she and I got to be really good friends. She's kind of like the daughter I never had because I have three sons. And we've, we've gotten very close over the years anyway. Um, at the time, she was getting a psychology degree from this seminary. And we used to talk all the time about this idea of, you know, modeling what we taught and the good shepherd and all this. And she said, wow, Mike, she said, if, if someone would just do something like this at the seminary, if, if there was a, uh, you know, if there was a, uh, a professor who would actually model what he teaches or what she teaches, she said, I get so sick in my head being so crammed with knowledge constantly. And she said, you ought to put in a, a, a syllabus to the, to the seminary. And I said, well, okay. I said, I, you know, I don't have a college degree or anything else. She said, doesn't matter. She said, just put in a, you know, put in your, your syllabus. So I did. And I got a standard form letter back saying, we're not taking any new courses right now, but if we do, we'll, we'll review your syllabus and get back to you. Well, about a year passed by and I hadn't heard anything. I'd, I'd all but forgotten about it, to tell you the truth. 
and all of a sudden I get an email and it's from the guy who's in charge of the new curriculum at the seminary. He says he wants to meet with me. Well, I go in there and I mean, I let him have it with both barrels. You know, I, I talk to him all about what we've talked about on this broadcast, the, you know, the temple teaching and, 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 and how we've become a nation of students and teachers rather than shepherds and sheep. And we got to get back to that. And I, I said, it starts right here at your seminaries. You know, this, this model of teaching without, without modeling. And he said, you know, anyway, we talked about this for about 30 minutes and I expected him to throw me out. He got really excited. He said, you know what, Mike? He said, we are losing an entire generation here. He said, they're learning our information, but we're not connecting with them. And he said, I think you're exactly what this university needs. And so I got up, you know, after we talked for a bit, I got up, started walking out the door. And he said, oh, by the way, he said, I'm going to need you to, I'm going to email you our official syllabus uh, format. He said, I'm going to need you to put your course in this format. And, he, and then he said, I need you to send me a resume. I said, fine. I mean, I floated out of that place. The, the idea of, of capturing all those young minds and, and getting them to thinking about shepherding and sheeping. And, you know, it was going to be an interactive class. It wasn't going to be a bunch of tests. Anyway, um, he was excited. I was excited. I went home. I did this real quick. I sent him my resume. A day later, I get a one-line response. Sorry, you don't have a degree. You can't teach here. I emailed him back. I said, you were so excited. You said, I, this was what you guys needed. I said, help me out here. Put me before your board. You know, help me argue this thing. He said, sorry, without a, without a degree in something. He said, doesn't matter what it is. And after going back and forth for a while, I finally sent him an email and I said, do you realize something? I said, if the guy you purport to be teaching about in this seminary wanted to come and be a professor here, he couldn't get in. He could clean the washrooms, but he couldn't teach. But I'll tell you who could. The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers. They all had seminary degrees. They all had degrees. So what you're telling me is if the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to come here and teach, they could. But if Jesus wanted to, he couldn't, nor could most of his disciples. Wow. Anyway, that's it for today. We're running out of time. So until next week, this is Mike Wolf on Voice in the Wilderness signing off. You've been listening to the new Voice in the Wilderness broadcast with author, speaker, and discipleship trainer, Mike Wolf. If you're feeling led to know more concerning Mike's challenging message to men and the church, his website is thereconnectedchurch.org. Or you can email Mike at reconnectedchurch at gmail.com and request to be put on his blog list. You can find his books, The Lost Supper, and his devotional series, Praying Today's Psalms, on Amazon. Until this same time next week, remember all you sons of Adam, we are made to thrive by joining the most exciting man who ever lived on the greatest adventure that ever was. We